Section three of Protagoras by Plato Translated by Benjamin Joet This Librivox recording is in the public domain Recording by Kevin Johnson Well then, he said, I think that the myth will be more interesting. Once upon a time there were gods only, and no mortal creatures. But when the time came that these also should be created, the gods fashioned them out of earth and fire and various mixtures of both elements in the interior of the earth. And when they were about to bring them into the light of day, they ordered Prometheus and Epimetheus to equip them, and to distribute to them severally their proper qualities. Epimetheus said to Prometheus, Let me distribute, and do you inspect. This was agreed, and Epimetheus made the distribution. There were some to whom he gave strength without swiftness, while he equipped the weaker with swiftness. Some he armed, and others he left unarmed, and devised for the latter some other means of preservation, making some large, and having their size as a protection, and others small, whose nature was to fly in the air or burrow in the ground this was to be their way of escape thus did he compensate them with the view of preventing any race from becoming extinct and when he had provided against their destruction by one another he contrived also a means of protecting them against the seasons of heaven clothing them with close hair and thick skins sufficient to defend them against the winter cold and able to resist the summer heat so that they might have a natural bed of their own when they wanted to rest. Also he furnished them with hooves and hair and hard and callous skins under their feet. Then he gave them varieties of food, herb of the soil to some, to others fruits of trees, and to others roots, and to some again he gave other animals as food, and some he made to have few young ones, while those who were their prey were very prolific. And in this manner the race was preserved, Thus did Epimetheus, who, not being very wise, forgot that he had distributed among the brute animals all the qualities which he had to give, and when he came to man, who was still unprovided, he was terribly perplexed. Now, while he was in this perplexity, Prometheus came to inspect the distribution, and he found that the other animals were suitably furnished but that man alone was naked and shoeless, and had neither bed nor arms of defence. The appointed hour was approaching when man in his turn was to go forth into the light of day, and Prometheus, not knowing how he could devise his salvation, stole the mechanical arts of Hephaestus and Athene, and fire with them. They could neither have been acquired nor used without fire, and gave them to man, Thus man had the wisdom necessary to the support of life, but political wisdom he had not, for that was in the keeping of Zeus, and the power of Prometheus did not extend to entering into the citadel of heaven where Zeus dwelt, who, moreover, had terrible sentinels, but he did enter by stealth into the common workshop of Athene and Hephaestus, in which they used to practice their favorite arts and carried off Hephaestus's art of working by fire, and also the art of Athene, 
and gave them to man and in this way man was supplied with the means of life but prometheus is said to have been afterwards prosecuted for theft owing to the blunder of epimetheus now man having a share of the divine attributes was at first the only one of the animals who had any gods because he alone was of their kindred and he would raise altars and images of them he was not long in inventing articulate speech and names and he also constructed houses and clothes and shoes and beds and drew sustenance from the earth thus provided mankind at first lived dispersed and there were no cities but the consequence was that they were destroyed by the wild beasts for they were utterly weak in comparison of them and their art was only sufficient to provide them with the means of life and did not enable them to carry on war against the animals food they had but not as yet the art of government of which the art of war is a part after a while the desire of self-preservation gathered them into cities but when they had gathered together having no art of government the evil entreated one another and were again in process of dispersion and destruction zeus feared that the entire race would be exterminated and so he sent hermes to them bearing reverence and justice to be the ordering principles of cities and the bonds of friendship and conciliation hermes asked zeus how he should impart justice and reverence among men should he distribute them as the arts are distributed that is to say to a favoured few only one skilled individual having enough of medicine or of any other art for many unskilled ones shall this be the manner in which i am to distribute justice and reverence among men or shall i give them to all to all said zeus i should like them all to have a share for cities cannot exist if a few only share in the virtues as in the arts and further make a law by my order that he who has no part in reverence and justice shall be put to death for he is a plague of the state and this is the reason socrates why the athenians and mankind in general when the question relates to carpentering or any other mechanical art allow but a few to share in their deliberations and when any one else interferes then as you say they object if he be not of the favoured few which as i reply is very natural but when they meet to deliberate about political virtue which proceeds only by way of justice and wisdom they are patient enough of any man who speaks of them as is also natural because they think that every man ought to share in this sort of virtue and that states could not exist if this were otherwise i have explained to you socrates the reason of this phenomenon and that you may not suppose yourself to be deceived in thinking that all men regard every man as having a share of justice or honesty and of every other political virtue let me give you a further proof which is this in other cases as you are aware if a man says that he is a good flute player or skilful in any other art in which he has no skill people either laugh at him or are angry with him and his relations think that he is mad and go and admonish him but when honesty is in question or some other political virtue 
even if they know that he is dishonest yet if the man comes publicly forward and tells the truth about his dishonesty then what in the other case was held by them to be good sense they now deem to be madness they say that all men ought to profess honesty whether they are honest or not and that a man is out of his mind who says anything else their notion is that a man must have some degree of honesty and that if he has none at all he ought not to be in the world i have been showing that they are right in admitting every man as a counsellor about this sort of virtue as they are of opinion that every man is a partaker of it and i will now endeavour to show further that they do not conceive this virtue to be given by nature or to grow spontaneously but to be a thing which may be taught and which comes to a man by taking pains no one would instruct no one would rebuke or be angry with those whose calamities they suppose to be due to nature or chance they do not try to punish or to prevent them from being what they are they do but pity them who is so foolish as to chastise or instruct the ugly or the diminutive or the feeble and for this reason because he knows that good and evil of this kind is the work of nature and of chance whereas if a man is wanting in those good qualities which are obtained by study and exercise and teaching and has only the contrary evil qualities other men are angry with him and punish and reprove him of these evil qualities one is impiety another injustice and they may be described generally as the very opposite of political virtue in such cases any man will be angry with another and reprimand him clearly because he thinks that by study and learning the virtue in which the other is deficient may be acquired if you will think socrates of the nature of punishment you will see at once that in the opinion of mankind virtue may be acquired no one punishes the evil-doer under the notion or for the reason that he has done wrong only the unreasonable fury of a beast acts in that manner but he who desires to inflict rational punishment does not retaliate for a past wrong which cannot be undone he has regard to the future and is desirous that the man who is punished and he who sees him punished may be deterred from doing wrong again he punishes for the sake of prevention thereby clearly implying that virtue is capable of being taught this is the notion of all who retaliate upon others either privately or publicly and the athenians too your own citizens like other men punish and take vengeance on all whom they regard as evil-doers and hence we may infer them to be of the number of those who think that virtue may be acquired and taught thus far socrates i have shown you clearly enough if i am not mistaken that your countrymen are right in admitting the tinker and the cobbler to advise about politics and also that they deem virtue to be capable of being taught and acquired there yet remains one difficulty which has been raised by you about the sons of good men what is the reason why good men teach their sons the knowledge which is gained from teachers and make them wise in that but do nothing towards improving them in the virtues which distinguish themselves and here socrates i will leave the apologue and resume the argument please to consider 
is there or is there not some one quality of which all the citizens must be partakers if there is to be a city at all in the answer to this question is contained the only solution of your difficulty there is no other for if there be any such quality and this quality or unity is not the art of the carpenter or the smith or the potter but justice and temperance and holiness and in a word manly virtue if this is the quality of which all men must be partakers and which is the very condition of their learning or doing anything else and if he who is wanting in this whether he be a child only or a grown-up man or woman must be taught and punished until by punishment he becomes better and he who rebels against instruction and punishment is either exiled or condemned to death under the idea that he is incurable if what i am saying be true good men have their sons taught other things and not this do consider how extraordinary their conduct would appear to be for we have shown that they think virtue capable of being taught and cultivated both in private and public and notwithstanding they have their sons taught lesser matters ignorance of which does not involve the punishment of death but greater things of which the ignorance may cause death and exile to those who have no training or knowledge of them ay and confiscation as well as death and in a word may be the ruin of families those things i say they are supposed not to teach them not to take the utmost care that they should learn how improbable is this socrates education and admonition commence in the first years of childhood and last to the very end of life mother and nurse and father and tutor are vying with one another about the improvement of the child as soon as ever he is able to understand what is being said to him he cannot say or do anything without their setting forth to him that this is just and that is unjust this is honourable that is dishonourable this is holy that is unholy do this and abstain from that and if he obeys well and good if not he is straitened by threats and blows like a piece of bent or warped wood at a later stage they send him to teachers and enjoin them to see to his manners even more than to his reading and music and the teachers do as they are desired and when the boy has learned his letters and is beginning to understand what is written as before he understood only what was spoken they put into his hands the works of great poets which he reads sitting on a bench at school in these are contained many admonitions and many tales and praises and encomia of ancient famous men which he is required to learn by heart in order that he may imitate or emulate them and desire to become like them then again the teachers of the lyre take similar care that their young disciple is temperate and gets into no mischief and when they have taught him the use of the lyre they introduce him to the poems of other excellent poets who are the lyric poets and these they set to music and make their harmonies and rhythms quite familiar to the children's souls in order that they may learn to be more gentle and harmonious and rhythmical and so more fitted for speech and action for the life of man in every part has need of harmony and rhythm then they send them to the master of gymnastic 
in order that their bodies may better minister to their virtuous mind and that they may not be compelled through bodily weakness to play the coward in war or on any other occasion this is what is done by those who have the means and those who have the means are the rich their children begin to go to school soonest and leave off latest when they have done with masters the state again compels them to learn the laws and live after the pattern which they furnish and not after their own fancies and just as in learning to write the writing master first draws lines with a style for the use of the young beginner and gives him the tablet and makes him follow the lines so the city draws the laws which were the invention of good lawgivers living in the olden time these are given to the young man in order to guide him in his conduct whether he is commanding or obeying and he who transgresses them is to be corrected or in other words called to account which is a term used not only in your country but also in many others seeing that justice calls men to account now when there is all this care about virtue private and public why socrates do you still wonder and doubt whether virtue can be taught cease to wonder for the opposite would be far more surprising but why then do the sons of good fathers often turn out ill there is nothing very wonderful in this for as i have been saying the existence of a state implies that virtue is not any man's private possession if so and nothing can be truer then i will further ask you to imagine as an illustration some other pursuit or branch of knowledge which may be assumed equally to be the condition of the existence of a state suppose that there could be no state unless we were all flute players as far as each had the capacity and everybody was freely teaching everybody the art both in private and public and reproving the bad player as freely and openly as every man now teaches justice and the laws not concealing them as he would conceal the other arts but imparting them for all of us have a mutual interest in the justice and virtue of one another and this is the reason why every one is so ready to teach justice and the laws suppose i say that there were the same readiness and liberality among us in teaching one another flute playing do you imagine socrates that the sons of good flute players would be more likely to be good than the sons of bad ones i think not would not their sons grow up to be distinguished or undistinguished according to their own natural capacities as flute players and the son of a good player would often turn out to be a bad one and the son of a bad player to be a good one all flute players would be good enough in comparison of those who were ignorant and unacquainted with the art of flute playing in like manner i would have you consider that he who appears to you to be the worst of those who have been brought up in laws and humanities would appear to be a just man and a master of justice if he were to be compared with men who had no education or courts of justice or laws or any restraints upon them which compelled them to practice virtue with the savages for example whom the poet Pherocrates exhibited on the stage at the last year's Lenaean festival if you were living among men such as the man-haters 
in his chorus you would be only too glad to meet with eurybates and phrenondus and you would sorrowfully long to revisit the rascality of this part of the world you socrates are discontented and why because all men are teachers of virtue each one according to his ability and you say where are the teachers you might as well ask who teaches greek for of that too there will not be any teachers found or you might ask who is to teach the sons of our artisans the same art which they have learned of their fathers he and his fellow workmen have taught them to the best of their ability but who will carry them further in their arts and you would certainly have a difficulty socrates in finding a teacher of them but there would be no difficulty in finding a teacher of those who are wholly ignorant and this is true of virtue or of anything else if a man is better able than we are to promote virtue ever so little we must be content with the result a teacher of this sort i believe myself to be and above all other men to have the knowledge which makes a man noble and good and i give my pupils their money's worth and even more as they themselves confess and therefore i have introduced the following mode of payment when a man has been my pupil if he likes he pays my price but there is no compulsion and if he does not like he has only to go into a temple and take an oath of the value of the instructions and he pays no more than he declares to be their value such is my apologue socrates and such is the argument by which i endeavour to show that virtue may be taught and that this is the opinion of the athenians and i have also attempted to show that you are not to wonder at good fathers having bad sons or at good sons having bad fathers of which the sons of polycletus afford an example who are the companions of our friends here perilous and xanthippus but are nothing in comparison with their father and this is true of the sons of many other artists as yet i ought not to say the same of perilous and xanthippus themselves for they are young and there is still hope of them protagoras ended and in my ear so charming left his voice that i the while thought him still speaking still stood fixed to hear Parentheses, borrowed by milton paradise lost End of parentheses. at length when the truth dawned upon me that he had really finished not without difficulty i began to collect myself and looking at hippocrates i said to him o son of apollodorus how deeply grateful i am to you for having brought me hither i would not have missed the speech of protagoras for a great deal for i used to imagine that no human care could make men good but i know better now yet i have still one very small difficulty which i am sure that protagoras will easily explain as he has already explained so much if a man were to go and consult pericles or any of our great speakers about these matters he might perhaps hear as fine a discourse but then when one has a question to ask of any of them like books they can neither answer nor ask and if any one challenges the least particular of their speech they go ringing on in a long harangue like brazen pots 
which when they are struck continue to sound unless someone puts his hand upon them whereas our friend protagoras can not only make a good speech as he has already shown but when he is asked a question he can answer briefly and when he asks he will wait and hear the answer and this is a very rare gift now i protagoras want to ask of you a little question which if you will only answer i shall be quite satisfied you were saying that virtue can be taught that i will take upon your authority and there is no one to whom i am more ready to trust but i marvel at one thing about which i should like to have my mind set at rest you were speaking of zeus sending justice and reverence to men and several times while you were speaking justice and temperance and holiness and all these qualities were described by you as if together they made up virtue now i want you to tell me truly whether virtue is one whole of which justice and temperance and holiness are parts or whether all these are only the names of one and the same thing that is the doubt which still lingers in my mind there is no difficulty socrates in answering that the qualities of which you are speaking are the parts of virtue which is one and are they parts i said in the same sense in which mouth nose and eyes and ears are the parts of a face or are they like the parts of gold which differ from the whole and from one another only in being larger or smaller i should say that they differed socrates in the first way they are related to one another as the parts of a face are related to the whole face and do men have some one part and some another part of virtue or if a man has one part must he also have all the others by no means he said for many a man is brave and not just or just and not wise you would not deny then that courage and wisdom are also parts of virtue most undoubtedly they are he answered and wisdom is the noblest of the parts and they are all different from one another i said yes and has each of them a distinct function like the parts of the face the eye for example is not like the ear and has not the same functions and the other parts are none of them like one another either in their functions or in any other way i want to know whether the comparison holds concerning the parts of virtue do they also differ from one another in themselves and in their functions for that is clearly what the simile would imply yes socrates you are right in supposing that they differ then i said no other part of virtue is like knowledge or like justice or like courage or like temperance or like holiness no he answered well then i said suppose that you and i inquire into their natures and first you would agree with me that justice is of the nature of a thing would you not that is my opinion would it not be yours also mine also he said and suppose that someone were to ask us saying o protagoras and you socrates what about this thing which you were calling justice is it just or unjust and i were to answer just would you vote with me or against me with you he said 
Thereupon I should answer to him who asked me, that justice is of the nature of the just. Would not you? Yes, he said. And suppose that he went on to say, well now, is there also such a thing as holiness? We should answer yes, if I am not mistaken. Yes, he said. Which you would also acknowledge to be a thing, should we not say so? He assented. And is this a sort of thing which is of the nature of the holy or of the nature of the unholy? I should be angry at his putting such a question and should say, Peace, man, nothing can be holy if holiness is not holy. What would you say? Would you not answer in the same way? Certainly, he said. And then, after this, suppose that he came and asked us, What were you saying just now? Perhaps I may not have heard you rightly, but you seem to me to be saying that the parts of virtue were not the same as one another. I should reply, You certainly heard that said, but not, as you imagine, by me, for I only asked the question. Protagoras gave the answer, and suppose that he turned to you and said, Is this true, Protagoras? And do you maintain that one part of virtue is unlike another? And is this your position? How would you answer him? I could not help acknowledging the truth of what he said, Socrates. Well then, Protagoras, we will assume this, and now supposing that he proceeded to say further, then holiness is not of the nature of justice, nor justice of the nature of holiness, but of the nature of unholiness, and holiness is of the nature of the not just, and therefore of the unjust, and the unjust is the unholy. How shall we answer him? I should certainly answer him on my own behalf that justice is holy, and that holiness is just. And I would say in like manner on your behalf also, if you would allow me, that justice is either the same with holiness, or very nearly the same. And above all, I would assert that justice is like holiness, and holiness is like justice. And I wish that you would tell me whether I may be permitted to give this answer on your behalf, and whether you would agree with me. He replied, I cannot simply agree, Socrates, to the proposition that justice is holy and that holiness is just, for there appears to me to be a difference between them. But what matter, if you please, I please, and let us assume, if you will I, that justice is holy and that holiness is just? Pardon me, I replied, I do not want this, if you wish or if you will, sort of conclusion to be proven, but I want you and me to be proven. I mean to say that the conclusion will be best proven if there be no if. Well, he said, I admit that justice bears a resemblance to holiness, for there is always some point of view in which everything is like every other thing. White is in a certain way like black, and hard is like soft and the most extreme opposites have some qualities in common. Even the parts of the face which, as we were saying before, are distinct and have different functions, are still in a certain point of view similar, and one of them is like another of them. And you may prove that they are like one another on the same principle that all things are like one another, and yet things which are like in some particular ought not to be called alike nor things which are unlike in some particular, however slight, 
unlike and do you think i said in a tone of surprise that justice and holiness have but a small degree of likeness certainly not any more than i agree with what i understand to be your view well i said as you appear to have a difficulty about this let us take another of the examples which you mentioned instead do you admit the existence of folly i do and is not wisdom the very opposite of folly that is true he said and when men act rightly and advantageously they seem to you to be temperate yes he said and temperance makes them temperate certainly and they who do not act rightly act foolishly and in acting thus are not temperate i agree he said then to act foolishly is the opposite of acting temperately he assented and foolish actions are done by folly and temperate actions by temperance he agreed and that is done strongly which is done by strength and that which is weakly done by weakness he assented and that which is done with swiftness is done swiftly and that which is done with slowness slowly he assented again and that which is done in the same manner is done by the same and that which is done in an opposite manner by the opposite he agreed once more i said is there anything beautiful yes to which the only opposite is the ugly there is no other and is there anything good there is to which the only opposite is the evil there is no other and there is the acute in sound true to which the only opposite is the grave there is no other he said but that then every opposite has one opposite only and no more he assented then now i said let us recapitulate our admissions first of all we admitted that everything has one opposite and not more than one we did so and we admitted also that what was done in opposite ways was done by opposites yes and that which was done foolishly as we further admitted was done in the opposite way to that which was done temperately yes and that which was done temperately was done by temperance and that which was done foolishly by folly he agreed and that which is done in opposite ways is done by opposites yes and one thing is done by temperance and quite another thing by folly yes and in opposite ways certainly and therefore by opposites then folly is the opposite of temperance clearly and do you remember that folly has already been acknowledged by us to be the opposite of wisdom he assented and we said that everything has only one opposite yes then protagoras which of the two assertions shall we renounce one says that everything has but one opposite the other that wisdom is distinct from temperance and that both of them are parts of virtue and that they are not only distinct but dissimilar both in themselves and in their functions like the parts of a face which of these two assertions shall we renounce for both of them together are certainly not in harmony they do not accord or agree for how can they be said to agree if everything is assumed to have only one opposite and not more than one and yet folly which is one has clearly the two opposites 
wisdom, and temperance. Is not that true, Protagoras? What else would you say? He assented, but with great reluctance. Then temperance and wisdom are the same, as before justice and holiness appeared to us to be nearly the same. And now, Protagoras, I said, we must finish the enquiry, and not faint. Do you think that an unjust man can be temperate in his injustice? I should be ashamed, Socrates, he said, to acknowledge this, which nevertheless many may be found to assert. And shall I argue with them or with you? I replied. I would rather, he said, that you should argue with the many first, if you will. Whichever you please, if you will only answer me and say whether you are of their opinion or not. My object is to test the validity of the argument, and yet the result may be that I who ask, and you who answer, may both be put on our trial. Protagoras at first made a show of refusing, as he said that the argument was not encouraging. At length, he consented to answer. End of part three. Recording by Kevin Johnson.